0: Hey, if you're new, welcome. My name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, you picked a great Sunday to join us. We are in the second week of a little bit of a series within a series in the book of Luke called Training the Twelve. It centers really all around Luke chapter 9. We looked at the commissioning of the disciples last week in Luke chapter 9. So if you got your Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it with me and find Luke chapter 9. We're going to be in Luke 9:10 through 17 here together this morning. And uh, we're going to look at... Uh, The only miracle outside of the resurrection that is included in all four gospels, every single gospel writer includes this miracle. Uh, They don't include any other miracle as often as this one. It's in every gospel. Uh, In Luke, it's a little bit, uh, it's kind of, you have the skeleton of the miracle in the book of Luke. Uh, But Luke leaves out some kind of pretty dramatic elements that may may come to mind when you think about Jesus feeding the 5,000. Uh, The skeleton of the story is there in Luke because it's in Luke uh, in in a very particular place. The way Luke puts this in Luke chapter 9 is between the questions that we ended with last week that came from Herod. Uh, Herod sought to see Christ, asking, who is this about whom I hear such things? And then you have this miracle today, and then next week you're going to have Peter's confident assessment of Jesus calling Christ the Messiah. So it's a, in a sense, it's a hinge miracle. It, it, it is a, it is a really pivotable, pivotal, pivotal, is that a story, is that a word? Pivotal. It's a pivotal story. It's a pivotal miracle in Luke's gospel as he seeks to help us understand who Christ is. That's been Luke's theme all the way up to this point. Uh, And would you agree if, as a ministry leader, you're going to have a hard time in ministry if you don't know who Jesus is correctly, amen? You're going to have a hard time doing much of anything in the Christian life if you don't uh, have really, really clearly in your mind understand who Christ is. Well, this miracle is here in the training of the 12 to help the disciples. Uh, As I said, Luke is a little bit terse in the way that he accounts for this miracle. He doesn't include women and children, he just tells you about the 5,000 men. He doesn't tell you about the little boy who brings the loaves and the fishes. Uh, He doesn't tell you much about the leading up to how this miracle happens. You don't have the desire, you know, you have in John chapter 6, you have Jesus exposing the desires of the crowd to tell them that they seek him for the wrong reasons. You don't get that in Luke. Uh, You don't get in Luke uh, the desires of the crowds like you do in Mark to make Jesus king. Uh, Luke strips all of that away to focus your attention on Christ and the disciples, because this is a lesson really that's, that's for the disciples. In this miracle, all you have is a nameless and faceless crowd, the 12 who are mentioned again by their collective group. You have Jesus and then you have the mounting pressure as the sun goes down and a crowd with massive need that Jesus meets by the end of our time in this story. So it's a illustration and a miracle that is incredibly powerful in the hearts and minds of the disciples this is one of the miracles that for them turns the lights on they now understand Jesus for who he is so in that in that sense it's an incredibly encouraging miracle for us to meditate and spend time on as we ourselves are disciples of Jesus in 2023 we need to grow in our understanding of the identity Of Jesus Christ, so we need to consider why did Jesus put it here? Why did Luke give us this story in this place to train the disciples in this way? Now, maybe uh, you work in an industry. Uh, We are in Charleston is a port city. Charleston has a lot of ships that come in and out. You may work in the tourism industry. You may work in the uh, logistics industry. Uh, you may work, we're a, a wedding destination location. You may work in the wedding planning industry. Some of you may have lots of um, requirements in your job that require strategy, logistics, planning, organization. Anybody have a job like that? You have to deal with large group, just four of us. Okay, that's fine. That, okay, not that important of a miracle. Uh, here's, the, here's the point. You're going to have... Um, something that happens in this miracle, I have to totally can my initial illustration. Isn't that frustrating? There's nobody, okay. Let me recalibrate just for a minute. What you have uh, in this story is the disciples' desire to meet a need according to their own human assessment of things. So what do you think? Do you think the best ministries, the best churches, the best Christians are the ones really who are the most organized, the most administrative, the most planned, the ones who have the most strategies in place for their Christian life? Are those the most successful churches and Christians that are out there? Or is there maybe a different way for us to assess and understand what ministry success and maybe being a disciple of Jesus Christ looks like? Have you discovered that the grace of God is profoundly inefficient? Right? There's zero reason that God's grace does anything other than humble us Because we all have a tendency to live our lives according to very efficient plans, standards, logistics, administration because we've got things to do. We've got people to see. We've got places to go. And if we don't, we won't be able to check the boxes off. So be encouraged. This miracle is going to humble you. It's going to expose you. But it's really, really going to encourage us as a church and give us a great confidence that Jesus knows what he's doing. Amen? So let's pray. Father, For these few minutes, we ask for your grace to understand some things about you that maybe we have forgotten, maybe some things about you that um, we are skeptical of, maybe some things about you that we've never even heard before. So for all of us, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that as we are confronted with the profound inability and insufficiency of the disciples in this story, that it wouldn't discourage us or drive us away, but that it would embolden us. To come to you as dependent sons and daughters, asking you for grace. And Father, for those who are in this room who are uh, maybe in a situation now where they feel insufficient, they feel weak, They feel helpless and maybe hopeless to do uh, what they know they need to do and maybe even the things they want to do, but find themselves at a lack for the ability, a lack for the desire, a lack for the resources to follow through on what you're asking them to do. Father, I pray that this message and these truths and this passage would show us um, how kind and gracious you are to come alongside us in our time of need. So we love you. We're confident that you hear our prayers that you don't ignore the cries of your people. And that we long to know you and to walk with you in more intimate and deep ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, take a look there. Luke chapter 9. We're going to take a look at Luke 9 verse 10 all the way down to verse 17. You okay? Fine. I don't care. <laughs> uh, I just came out. I don't know. Uh. I'm sorry, I care, I do, I do. Let's look at this together. Luke 9, verse 10, on their return. Now, if you're reading Luke all the way through, you you will have known what we looked at last week was that the disciples were commissioned into the greatest ministry endeavor ever. They were given the very power of Jesus Christ himself to preach, to teach, to heal, to cast out demons. And they come back, and you've got to think that these guys are filled with just these stories of massive ministerial success. The conversations around the table about the success that they have seen, about the people that have believed, about the demons and the diseases that they cast out, and they come back to Jesus going... Wow, we did it. Jesus, you, you gave us power. We were faithful. We went out, and now as we return, I think Mark puts it that they come back rejoicing, saying, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So when they come back, the disciples, the apostles here in verse 10, told them all that they had done. Paul, uh, Paul Luke uses a term here that is the, one of the terms that he uses right at the beginning of his gospel. That word for tell is the same word that he uses in Luke 1:1, where he said he's undertaken to compile a narrative of all the things that have happened concerning Jesus for Theophilus. So in a sense, Luke comes back to the point here where the apostles say, we're now telling a story of what God has done through us, and as we return and give a report to Jesus. There's nothing but an emotional and spiritual high for the things that have happened. So we come back and they tell him all that he has done and he took them and he withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When Luke uses that term withdraw in reference to Jesus, it's often connected to Jesus withdrawing from the crowds to spend time in isolation and prayer with his heavenly father. It's a time for, uh, for restoration, a time for refocusing on the things that God has called Christ to do. In fact, uh, Mark gives us a little bit more in his description of this passage. He, he says this over in Mark 30, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. So, in Luke's retelling of the story, a lot of the motivations of the characters are left out. You don't see a lot in this story about what is happening, but Jesus decides to say, hey, we need some respite away from the ministry that we've been, uh, that we've been acting on. These disciples, after their ministry high, get away for some time with Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting As Luke begins this story, a lot of that is implicitly known from the other Gospels. But essentially what you have is the disciples come back and they decide to take a break and retreat to Bethsaida. Bethsaida uh, means house of fishing or house of game. So if you were a hunter, this is the kind of place that you would go. It's not a wilderness place, it's a place with lots of wild animals. It's got great fishing and great hunting. And Jesus decides to go and take these guys away. They move out of Herod's, uh, the Tetrarch's jurisdiction over into Philip's jurisdiction. They, they kind of leave the natural location where there's beginning to be tension and pressure because of the ministry that they're um, engaging in. So as Jesus pulls away, he takes the disciples, they get in a boat, they go over to Bethsaida, which is in the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, and they get ready to take a break. And just like Jesus invited Peter into the boat, out into the water to let his nets down for a catch, Jesus is going to arrive in this location, and he's going to teach the disciples a lesson here. But this lesson isn't going to be as, um, as active as you might think. It felt very intentional when Jesus told Peter to go out into the water and to let down his nets for a catch. And it created a tension in that narrative about Jesus and Peter, where Peter says, hey, we've fished all night, we've caught nothing, but at your word, I'll let down the nets. You remember that? Well, this story is a little bit different because this story is going to feel like Jesus is very passive, like Jesus doesn't have a plan, Like the events that are unfolding sort of happen to Jesus because Jesus is unprepared. So watch this. Look at verse 11. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. Now you get the sense in Jesus' ministry, and I think this is just sort of the building momentum of the ministry of Jesus and along with the disciples who now continue on the ministry of Jesus. But it's like the paparazzi are everywhere, isn't it? That they're talking to their friends and they're, they have lookouts and they're paying attention and they're watching where he goes and they're taking pictures and tweeting to their friends and saying here's where he is, this is where he's going to be, look at there's the disciples and it says that they, they arrive there in the same place where Jesus is. So I don't, I mean if you're a disciple and you just came back from working for Jesus and you're a little bit tired and Jesus says let's go take a break, you might be pretty excited. But now when they arrive in Bethsaida, they get ready to disembark from the boat, get some kickback time with Jesus in the hammock. The crowds are already there. They're already ahead of them. And Jesus does something perhaps a little bit unexpected. You might expect Jesus to go, more people, don't you? I mean, if you're an introvert and you just had time with people at a party, you need a nap and a sandwich and nobody to talk to you that much. And maybe that's how the disciples are feeling. I don't know if that's how they're feeling. We don't really know what Jesus is feeling. Again, you don't get a lot of the inner dialogue. Mark gives you a little bit. Let me give you what Mark says about this. Mark says that when they arrive in Bethsaida, it says that he went ashore and saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So here's Jesus and the disciples after a successful ministry circuit and they arrive in Bethsaida ready for some downtime but the people beat them there and Jesus whether we expect him to or not Jesus opens his arms to the crowds but continuously in Jesus's ministry he continues to indiscriminately welcome those who come to him It doesn't matter how tired he is. It doesn't matter when he healed people back in Luke 4 and he got to the end of the day by laying hands on every single one of them. He hits the bed, he wakes up early, and he goes out to pray. It's as if if the, the difficulties of life, the struggles of people, the hardships, the demonic oppression, the diseases, the unbelief, the difficulties of just life, that are characterized by crowds and crowds of people is met by a compassionate and almost inexhaustible Savior who opens his arms to welcome people. Is that an encouragement to you? To know that these people come not even a lot of times knowing why they're coming to Jesus, but there's no stiff arm with Jesus. There's open arms and welcome And it says that he does two particular things beyond welcoming them. It says that he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God, which is pretty kind of an expectation that we have of Jesus. It's the same commission that he gave to the disciples, the same commission that he introduced his ministry to. He continues to teach and preach about the kingdom of God, and two, to cure those who have need of healing. Both of those verbs related to Jesus are in the imperfect, which means they all have ing endings that he was continually speaking, and he was continually curing. No matter what the expectations were of the disciples for a little bit of rest, we find Jesus, arms wide open, continuing to preach and continuing to heal, continuing to care, continuing to show compassion, continuing to love people as they come to him. So, in light of Jesus' indiscriminate compassion... You might find the disciples rejoicing. We might expect the disciples to be weary. We definitely expect the disciples to be working right alongside Jesus. But there's been no tension in this story so far. The tension shows up in verse 12. Now the day began to wear away. And the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside, to find lodging and get provisions. For we are here in a desolate place. Now, you can understand the mindset of the disciples, probably, right? You're getting to the end of the day. There's throngs of people. Mark, in his account, tells us that they barely had time to even eat. There were so many people there. There was a constant need, constant drain on their mental, emotional, and physical resources as people continued to come and continued to come. And you watch as the, as the sun starts to set, you might think to yourself that man, Jesus sure has been teaching a long time. Boy, Jesus sure has been curing a lot of people. Jesus has been spending time all day long pouring himself out on behalf of others. And there are some people in the crowd who no doubt are getting a little bit hangry Anybody have kids who get hangry, a little bit hungry, a little bit angry? Yeah, we have kids like that. They get to the end of their day and they just crumble. You ever hit that witching hour between hungry and tired? I had a friend, I had a guy, lived, a roommate I lived with. If you got him in the trifecta of hungry, tired, and hot, you just, you just go out of the house. You just go take a break elsewhere. No doubt there are some people here who, who feel like this. And I think we can presume maybe some good motives on part of the disciples. But the disciples approach Jesus. As the sun gets ready to go down, you've got thousands of people who are still there. And the disciples say, send the crowd away. I mean, let's face it, food and shelter. I took one wilderness preparedness course in, in, when I was a kid. You may not know this. I am ruggedly indoorsy. I am... Not that excited about doing things outside where the mosquitoes love me. But I, even I know, that if you don't have food and shelter, you are not going to last very long. So we can presume at least good faith on part of the disciples. As they look at all these people, they say, here's, we need to get a solution. We need to get a plan together. So you got a whole bunch of people. Jesus keeps talking. Some people are getting healed, but Jesus, they're getting Hungry. In fact, this is a mark of a good leader, isn't it? This is a mark of a good mom and dad who understand the needs of their children at a particular time and place to make decisions that benefit the people that they lead. No leader is worth his salt if he's not thinking about what is best for the people that they lead. So here are the disciples trying to do their best to consider what's best for the people who are all flocking to Jesus and their solution is to send the people away so we have this problem on our hands the disciples have cured the disciples have preached but they've done it in a small context they have certainly never faced a ministry context like this before with thousands of people coming and going thousands of people being a drain on their resources and their solution to the problem tells us a couple things about how they are thinking Number one, their solution tells them that they are cognizant of the problem of having so many people there. Problems get multiplied when you start adding zeros to the number of people. You can handle 10 people in your house. Can you handle 100 people in your house? Probably not. So they're at least aware of the challenges, but it also demonstrates something about the way they're thinking. It shows us their mindset. That this challenge that's in their hands right now, this challenge that they are facing, even with Jesus present, excludes the presence of Jesus. Now you might not be aware of this when you, when you look at this phrase, that, uh, when Luke gives it to us here in verse 12, what they say in the Greek is actually a command. They say, Jesus... What we need you to do right now is to give some direction so that all these people can get their needs satisfied, can get their legitimate needs for food and shelter handled. So Jesus, we've got a plan. We need to get organized. We need to get Peter on the phone calling the hotels. We need to get Andrew on the phone making sure that Chick-fil-A is still open. We've got to make sure that some people have their needs met here, Jesus. And Jesus, if you would just stop preaching and the healing, and if you would just give them some direction, we could get them out of here and on their way home. So there's a tendency in the ways that we think, even with, or the disciples think, even with Jesus present that Jesus' presence has really not much to do with this problem. In fact, Jesus, you probably created this problem because you talk so long. Jesus, if you just take a break from preaching and take your messages from, I don't know, eight hours down to two, we could handle some of the needs of these people. You know, So what you notice in this, you know, you'll see this in a minute as we go through it, but there's only four lines of dialogue in this whole passage. Three of them are commands, and one is a description of their inability. And the dialogue begins with telling Jesus what to do. Would you agree that it's not a good idea to tell Jesus what to do? I mean, you laugh. Would you ever have prayers like that? Jesus, are you up there doing anything? Because we've got real problems down here. We've got some things that we think you need to handle. If Jesus, you would just give us a little bit of that, you know, command and control power. If you just give a little bit of direction, we could get some problems solved down here. So the lead up into this miracle shows us that this is a necessary miracle for us understanding the really the perspective we ought to have as disciples when we walk with Jesus. It's a necessary miracle because all of us have a tendency to break life into real life and spiritual life. Sin, Satan, demons, righteousness, uh, repentance, faith, spiritual things. Taxes, the lawn, snack time, uh, oil changes, rent, mortgage, uh, homeowner's insurance, the lawn guy, dental cleanings, life. We have a tendency to, to take life and, and kind of split it up. Hey, I need Jesus for righteousness, truth, holiness, goodness, self-control, for sure. But I've got a list over here of things I've got to get done. Because I've got to pay bills on time and I've got needs happening. And I've got to get my three square meals. And I've got to make sure the kids get their three square meals and get onto snack time and on to their sporting events and onto their school. I've got things that I need to do. So the disciples give a natural response to the problems of their day. They give a natural response to so many people being present. Because if all of our lives are essentially reduced to strategy, efficiency, and organization it is going to eat our spiritual life alive. Do you know that? If your spiritual life is primarily about efficiency and getting things done, you aren't going to ask Jesus any questions. You know, there's there's no question here. There's no question in this entire passage. Nobody's saying, Jesus, what do you think we should do with this situation? Jesus, what's your solution for this problem that has been created by your preaching and teaching? Jesus, is there something you would like us to do to serve your good purposes in our lives and in the lives of these people? Nobody asks that. The disciples simply say, Do this, get this done, here's the solution. Now, the reason this miracle is so amazing is that Jesus brings the real needs of people together with his compassion and his kindness and they meet in this story because these needs are real needs amen food and shelter real needs and jesus doesn't dismiss them going like all right the preaching time is done y'all go hit a food truck no jesus invites the disciples confronts the disciples Or the disciples confront Jesus rather with the need for Jesus to do something. And Jesus, it feels like, hasn't been doing anything but preaching and healing. Hang on. Look at verse 13. Here's Jesus' response. Now in the Greek, this also is an imperative, which means it's also a command. And Jesus confronts them in verse 13 with what they ought to do. He said to them, you give them something to eat. Just pause for a minute to get the feeling of what it's like to be in the presence of at least 5,000 men, not counting women and children, and for Jesus to point to you and put his finger in your chest after you just put your finger in his chest, telling him what to do, and him turning around on you, and him go, you give him something to eat. You meet the needs of the people. You take care of this problem. Now, we thought the disciple solution was a good one, right? You probably would have come up with that solution. I would have come up with that solution. Jesus preaching, man, great message. God, remember how that demon left? That was awesome too. Jesus, I got some help that you need from me. I've got a great plan to make sure the people get fed. Jesus, make sure they go, send them away. Here's the plan. We're going on track. We're going to keep ministering to people's needs. Amen, Jesus. But Jesus' plan is worse. It's a worse plan, right? It's a plan you don't expect. It's a plan, frankly, that's devastating. It's a plan that's foolish. It's a plan that shows Jesus doesn't understand what is going on. You give them something to eat. Jesus commands the disciples to do something they can't do. Right? See, the, we all know John 15, right? The vine, I'm the vine. You're the branches. Abide in me, for unless you abide in me, you can do nothing, right? But have you found out in your life that uh, that reality comes in waves? It, it, come, it almost comes in, in seasons, doesn't it? I don't live that way all the time. I don't live with a confident skepticism in my own sufficiency and inability, Because that experience as a Christian has to be felt more than it has to be understood. You've got to come in your Christian life to the absolute, fundamental, convinced reality that you can do nothing. And there's nothing like Jesus telling you, commanding you with an imperative to do something that you cannot do to make you realize that you cannot do it. The weight that had to... Flood into the hearts of these men as Jesus just asked them to do something that is foolishness, that is impossible. Let me pause and just let me ask just a question. When you have those moments where you are confronted with your inability, what is your view of God? When you come to the end of yourself, do you look at the commands in Scripture and just throw your hands up? I mean, I know what kind of husband I'm supposed to be, but I don't have the resources to be the husband I'm supposed to be. God, why would you ask me to do something I fundamentally cannot do? I know the woman I'm supposed to be. I know the kind of character I'm supposed to have. I know the kind of wife I'm supposed to be. I see it all very clearly in God's word. But I'm at the end of my resources. Very quickly, I run out of self-will and discipline. And very quickly, I'm a sinner faster than I want to admit. I'm at the end of my spiritual resources quicker than I'd like to confess. God, what are you doing putting me in this situation? Why are you asking of me something that I cannot do in my own strength? And if we're not careful, that, that can stoke a perpetual spiritual frustration. One commentator put it like this, it's Pharaoh that makes you make bricks without straw. It's not Jesus. So what are we doing? Why is Jesus saying that? Why do the disciples command Jesus with their perspective? With at least a feasible solution and Jesus responds with a worse solution totally exposing their insufficiency totally exposing their inadequacy. See the reason we can't reduce ministry to administration and logistics and control is that Ministry is more than those things. In fact, that's not even ministry at all. I'll show it to you. Look at the remainder of the verse. Look at their response to Jesus. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go out and buy food for all these people. I mean, this is a worse solution than the first one. Yours is absolutely the worst. Buying food for people, we didn't think about that. Why don't you just send the people away? One of the guys in our church works for Chick-fil-A. And I called him this week on the way home and I said, I need a good illustration right here. And you've got 5,000, you've got women and children, let's call it 10,000. I said, brother, how much is it for a boxed lunch from Chick-fil-A? He said, $899. I said, all right, I can do the math, I can move the zeros. This is a $90,000 problem. Do you have any $90,000 problems in your life? where I don't have that kind of money, I don't know where we're going to solve this. If I even use all the resources I have and borrow money from friends, I'm still not going to get to the 90,000 that I need to accomplish the ministry that Jesus wants us to do. Is ministry fundamentally dependent on money? No. It's good. It's helpful. But is that the point? Jesus, even if you wanted us to go out and buy food, We couldn't do it. Philip says over in Matthew that it would cost 200 days of labor. And that wouldn't even be enough for all these people. See, if we don't understand the real ministry with Jesus, that walking with Jesus to do things that Jesus calls us to do has to be done in Jesus' power, then we'll never pray. We'll never ask God, God, what do you want to do in this situation? God, how do you want us to meet these needs? You've commanded us to be the kind of men and women that you want us to be. You've commanded us to be disciples of Jesus Christ, to live out our lives under your authority and power and provision. So, God, put it into our hands. They don't ask that. Ministry to them is impossible, it can't happen. We faced the end of our ability. We have no sufficiency, and Jesus is asking us to do something that we cannot do. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. Why 50? I don't know, and the commentators didn't know either. I just guessed. You got 12 guys with four boxes each of Chick fil A lunches. You could probably get to 50 people, you could hold four boxes, men and you could probably get them out to 50 people before coming back to get more from Chick-fil-A. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's because of the counting of numbers and they had 100 groups of 50. I don't know what the number, I don't know why. But for some reason, Jesus uses his administrative wisdom given from his heavenly father to let them know that they need to sit down in groups of 50. Why, does that make sense to you? Nope. Why is it there? I don't know, Jesus said so. Is that enough for you? Is Jesus' administrative plan sufficient for what he is about to do? It is. Now, put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Do you think they know what's about to happen? Do you think the people know what's about to happen? Do you think they're getting questions as the disciples go out and go, hey, I need this 50 over here. Sit there. I need this 50 over here. Hey, what are we doing? Don't know yet. We need these 50 over here. You, need this. you, got, you got some kids, first graders? Great. Are they hungry? Oh, they're hangry. Okay. Uh, let's leave them over there. Put the angry ones over here. Uh, We'll put some 50 back there. Hey, we're hungry. Yeah, we get it. We still don't know what's going on. Let's get 50 over there. So by the time that they make 50 to 100 groups of 50, they're on their way back to Jesus. Verse 15, they did so. What did they understand about Jesus? We don't know. What were they thinking in their minds? We don't know. What were they expecting Jesus to do? We don't know. See how Luke does it? Luke Luke strips away all of the inner tension, doesn't he? He just gives you the facts so that the bare bones reality in this story is that the disciples have a plan that they think Jesus ought to do. Jesus confronts them with their inability and their insufficiency to do the thing that Jesus wants them to do. And then he gives them a plan that doesn't make sense by having people sit down and they do it. Verse 15. They did so, and he had all of them sit down. Verse 16. Everything that Luke does at this point is to concentrate your focus on Jesus. There's five different verbs that he gives us about Jesus. It's as if the crowd leaves, the disciples leave, and all you're left with is focusing on what Jesus is about to do with these five loaves and these two fishes. One, he takes the five loaves and the two fish. Let me tell you something that God is never asking you for more than what you have. He's asking you to put in his hands all that you got. No more, no less, just all that you got. So that as a disciple of Jesus Christ, your gifts, your abilities, your bank account, your willingness, your time, your schedule, all of that is meant to be put in Jesus' hands. And to ask Jesus some very important questions. Jesus, what do you want to do with my time, my ability, my schedule, my money, my family, my job? And God, would you do something with it that very clearly I cannot do? Very clearly in this situation, the need is massive. And no one can meet it. Not even me, not even the abilities that I have. Have you found that uh, you have situations in life that you run into where you quickly reach the end of your ability, the end of your wisdom, the end of your bank at the end of your fill in the blank? And Jesus says, I'll take it. I'll take what you got and you put it in my hands. Now watch what he does. He takes it. Number two... You know, and I I love, too, is that (laughs) don't you expect Jesus to, like, and lo, Jesus eye-rolled the disciples and rebuked them for their insufficiency and inability. Isn't that great that that's not there? Isn't it great that that Jesus says, I'm not going to, I'm not going to criticize you for what little you have. I know you don't have very much. I'm not going to criticize you for your lack of understanding, your lack of faith, for any of those things. I'm just asking you to put what you have into my hands. Number two, he looks up. He makes an intentional point to shift his posture, to say that the things that are in my hands have come from God. God. The things that are in my hands, I recognize as being a part of God's good and precious plan in this time and in this moment. Number three, he said a blessing. He gives thanks for what is really there. Liberal commentators have such a hard time with the feeding of the 5,000. They, listen, if you read liberal commentaries, all, they have all sorts of ways they try to get around this. They think the disciples had food hidden in a cave. Jesus stands in front of the cave and people start handing out food like this. They thought that there, there's, I'm serious, there's, um, there's one that the boy's uh, generosity as he brings the loaves and the fishes to Jesus causes everybody else to go, I'm going to take my loaves and fishes too and I'm going to hand them out. There's all sorts of ways that people try to interpret this thing poorly. But here's Jesus making a point of taking what the disciples have, how little and scarce it is, looking up, acknowledging God, giving thanks for what he put into his hands. He breaks it, and the miracle happens in the giving. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. In the Greek, that's another ing vore, verb. Just as Jesus was continuously curing and continuously speaking, here he is continuously giving. So that Jesus does the providing, but the disciples do the distributing. So imagine this experience of you sitting in the crowd and here comes James, Peter, John, Bartholomew, all the disciples, and they come back. Here you go, I'll be right back. And they go, and they come back. And they hand it out, and they go. And they come back. They're, where are you getting all this food? Jesus? How is Jesus? I don't know. Where did all this come from? I don't know. How do, it's, it's a miracle of Jesus creating something out of nothing. Do you believe Jesus can do that? So at the intersection of massive human need, the insufficiency of the disciples... The scarcity of the food they have and the compassion of Jesus Christ to meet real needs is the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. All centered on the incarnation of God with men. Look at verse 17. And they all ate and were satisfied. You know, the satisfied word, in the Greek it says, and they, uh, it says, they ate all. Sorry, they were satisfied all. The emphasis is on the all, that nobody went without. The word that for satisfied is used of birds gorging themselves on flesh in the book of Revelation. You know that? It's the same word that's used of Luke uh, in the Beatitudes in Luke when Jesus says, blessed are the hungry for they shall be filled. Total, complete satisfaction, toothpick in your mouth at the end of the meal, you are done and full. Finish with Thanksgiving dinner full. Totally and completely satisfied full. Couldn't eat another bite full. Not only that, look at the remainder of the verse, and what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. How did the disciples get their needs met? By being willing. To put their scarcity into the hands of Jesus to serve the needs of others and thus their needs are completely and totally satisfied. Doesn't make you want to stand up and applaud Jesus? Isn't that incredible? So. Why... What do we take away from the feeding of the 5,000 for us? I want to give you just three, just three things. One that has to do with the church. One that has to do with your own personal ministry. And one that has to do with your own personal spiritual life. Let me start with the church. There are certainly truths here for the disciples, and there are certainly truths here for church leaders who will come in the generations after the first century. The end of John, when Jesus closes with his words to Peter, he, can, he, re, he restores Peter three different times by telling him continuously to feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. At the end of Matthew, it's go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And the temptation a lot of times for church leaders or for ministry leaders is to come up with our own strategies, our own plans, and our own solutions to meet the needs of God's people who are coming to him. And let me tell you, in my line of work, there's all sorts of bloggers and tweeters and Facebook posts and writers and thinkers who decide that the main problem the church has is its lack of ministry strategy, organization, administration, and logistics. That the church has been blowing it because they haven't been strategic enough with the plans they have. And what's embarrassing about this passage is that the apostles' plan sends the people away from Jesus hungry. Jesus' plan draws the people close. The apostles' plan leaves the people to fend for themselves. Jesus' plan draws them close to provide the needs that only he can satisfy. And it is arrogant for church leaders and pastors to think that the main problem in the church today is our lack of strategy. The main problem in the church today is the unwillingness to feed the people of God with what comes from the hands of Jesus Christ. That's number one. Number two... It has to do with your own personal ministry. You're gonna have relationships with people this week in your family, in the kids that you raise, at work, at school, and the variety of places that God is going to put you. And you're gonna be faced with a temptation to think that the greatest need that they have is your human wisdom. The greatest need that they have is your experience and your thoughts and your experience and the things that have happened in your life that give you an opportunity and a platform to meet their needs. But the greatest need in the ministry that we engage in in this church is our willingness to open the word of God and to encourage one another with what Jesus says. So when we talk about making disciples here, we are in the process of crucifying the tendency we have in our life and heart toward pride and self-sufficiency and sitting next to our brothers and sisters in the faith and those we long to know Jesus and to say, I have nothing to offer you but what Jesus has given me. Because I'm a beggar in need just like you. I am in need of sustenance and support and sufficiency that comes from the hands of Christ just like you are. And the best that I know how to do is to give you what Jesus has given to me. So if you're going to effectively disciple, if you're going to effectively have an impact on somebody else's life, reject the temptation to rely on human wisdom Be disciplined and desperate and humble enough to ask, Jesus, what do you want to do to meet the needs of the people who are in my life? And God, would you use me to do it? However you want, however foolish it may seem. But Christ, I'm going to come to you, not with my plan, but with ears open for your plan. Number three, it has to do with the ways that you're hungry and insufficient right now. It has to do with the struggles in your life where you have reached the end of the dock and there's nowhere to go and you feel like Pharaoh and the armies are behind you and the Red Sea is in front of you and all you've got is this feeling like God has asked you to do the impossible. And this story is here to invite you to consider that maybe you're in that spot to experience the provision of God in ways that you wouldn't have got to unless you came to the end of yourself. So we're about to celebrate the Lord's table here. And as we do so, I want you to consider just the things that we've learned here this morning from this passage and to reflect on the Lord's table as a place where we come with profound insufficiency to be the people that God wants us to be. But simultaneously, we come with great confidence that Christ has met our deepest and most profound need because he's a compassionate and merciful Savior. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask our team to come up, and I'll lead us through communion here in the next couple minutes. Father, we pause and look at this story of the feeding 5,000 amazed at your provision. We come and we're humbled by our tendency to think that we need a new strategy and new plans and new organization and new visions to be able to accomplish something from you that is as simple as us asking you for help. So Father, would would our church be characterized not by bringing you our most strategic and thoughtful and planned up uh, administrative plan that we seek for you to bless and for you to obey us, but would we come skeptical of our own resources confident that we can put what little we have into your hands and that you will do beyond what we could ask or imagine for your glory. So Father, we ask you to bless us in this endeavor. Would we be a church that in our spiritual lives would be desperate for what you have to say, desperate to obey what you call us to do? And Father, we look at your word and we're in need of your grace and your spirit to be the men and the women that you want for us to be. So for the people in this room who feel like they've come to the end of themselves, where they've been looking to their own resources, I pray that they would know even from your hands and your heart this morning how you provide for our deepest, most desperate needs. So Father, we love you.